make your way back to your seat, if you would please. When you get there, if you would, you can stand and honor the reading of Scripture and go right to the Word of God. And Hebrews, we're going to read from the book of Hebrews, both now and in the text as we journey together. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews 3 for one verse. We're about six or seven verses of Scripture to open with. I can't tell you again how much I appreciate you being in service. And I'm going to pray that the Lord and these men of God have prayed and asked us in, and asked the Father for His blessing and to... You know, to bring our thoughts subject to Jesus, it's easy to get distracted. Come on, it's easy for your mind to drift. And these are sacred moments that we have that the Lord gives us. And I can confess to you today, my mind has been very scattered, except for the, the time when I was able to sit in front of the Scriptures this morning. And I'm just going to pray that when, when, we, when we open this text here, that truly our hearts and our minds will... We'll mesh into one and we'll gain the heart of God, what he wants to speak to us. Hebrews chapter number three, verse number one is our, one of our verses. To, and I'm just kind of, I pick and chose a few verses of scripture here uh, to just kind of create a, a context. It says in verse one, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Surely he's talking about us, right? Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 here. The writer here says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. So here's the, the sum total of what he had spoken of up until this point. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Now let's turn to chapter 10. We'll read four verses there, or five verses, and then one additional verse. And that will, again, I had to just kind of pick and choose the verses that I would use here to just create the context. That's all I want in your heart right now It's just the context. Here it says in the 10th chapter, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus... By a new and a living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And everybody said amen. Let's read one last verse. That's powerful. We could just spend our entire time in each of these individual verses. But I want you to see the wording here that the apostle uses here. And from this, we're going to create our context today. In verse number 14 of chapter number 4. And I know that you've already began to discern a theme in reading this passage of Scripture. And we're going to trust that this is going to be able to be made more clear as the exhortation follows here verse number 14 says see i pray that god helps us to see don't you by the eye of faith that somehow with our eyes closed that you know with you could you can still you can be blind deaf and dumb and still see come on through the through the eye of faith and in verse number 14 seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens 
Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And so today I've chosen to talk to you not just about a subject, but about a person. And I want to talk to you about Jesus, the great high priest. And I want to borrow that term that you see taken exactly from the author's pen here in the book of Hebrews. Jesus, there's a, Jesus is a lot of things, isn't he? He is. But he's the great high priest today. And I want you to understand the context of what that means and what that can do in your life when you understand that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so let's pray. Father, I'm humbled to be in this house. Father, today, tainted by the sins of the flesh, God, and just knowing that there's, Father, that I'm a, a, a broken vessel, an earthen vessel. But, Father, the Scripture says that you have this treasure in an earthen vessel, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. And I just pray today, as Peter, the apostle, wrote in his epistle, he said that when we speak, we would speak as the oracles of God. And I pray that you would give me the gift of a teacher, you'd put the heart of a pastor, you'd pull, put, Father God, the compulsion of an evangelist, and you'd put a prophetic anointing on this message today as we expound this, Father, most, uh, most impacting subject, Jesus, our great high priest. Lord, I love you, and it's in Jesus' name, and everybody said Amen and amen. And we could pray all day and we could pray spiritually uh, laced prayers, but I want to expound to you what the Lord's laid on my heart. And I want to take you back, I'm going to take you back in a moment to my message last week and try to connect to it. But before I do so, certainly the subject matter here begins to unfold before us in the book of Hebrews. And me certainly being not a uh, you know, theologian, but just having at least a broad applic- uh, understanding of the Scriptures, it seems as if the writer of Hebrews is writing to people in the first century who came from the Hebrew culture. Many of them certainly were Jews by, by nationality, by birth, but then they, many of them possibly had even proselyted into the Jewish religion that we know as Judaism. However, many responded to the preaching of Jesus Christ. And they've given their heart to Christ. They believe that he's been the Messiah. But time has passed. And the scripture tells us, and history tells us, that the Judaizers were those that were steeped in Judaism, persecuted the church, especially the Jewish element of the church, for their faith in Christ. And they caused many of them, by threat of death and being ostracized from their community, to revert back to Judaism. And so the author here brings us from chapter 1 through chapter 13, this entire dialogue of expounding with familiar phraseology to those that had understood Judaism. Now, if you don't know much about the Jewish religion, then that makes it more difficult for you to understand. But if you've had any time at all with your Bible and you've gone back and you've read and you've understood the temple and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the priesthood, then you can understand a little bit more the author's intent. And certainly the author's intent is to show the superiority both of the new covenant and of the priestly ministry, the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. He even said in chapter number 8 that he is the high priest over the house of God, but not of an earthly tabernacle. The Bible says that he has appeared in heaven before us. 
And so I want to, I want to just you to be aware of it because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Now, phrases and words like priest and, and, and tabernacle and temple, they're not just bound to the Bible. The, you know, history records that there's a lot of priests. There's priests today of, of all types of ancient religions. But what would make this root of Judaism that gave, that gave birth to the tree of Christianity to which you and I are a part of and the fruit of that we are a part of, what, what, what would make us have the confidence that it's the true religion? That's very important to us, isn't it, today? Because if not, we'd just follow the lie. Then we have a good time. You know, we've got some handsome pastors that stand up in front of you and tell nice jokes every now and then. But, but at the end, we've missed it all. If, this, if, if Christ is not risen, right, if the Scriptures are not true, Paul said, we are of all men most miserable. He said, we might as well eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But I believe in my heart of hearts that despite the plurality of religions that are in the world today, that we have put our faith and our confidence in first the one true God, right? And His revelation to us, first through the Scriptures, and, second, and thirdly, uh, which is one, two, and three, but secondly in that context, in the man, Christ Jesus, but I want to take you back to a significant moment because I want you to understand the priestly ministry of Jesus. You can't do this without going back in time. You have to go back long before this day to one thing that I've learned in my study over the years of what there are at least there are perhaps two of the most significant days in all the history of the world. Certainly we know the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the climax of the plan of God. But there was another fateful day that stands out in all of recorded human history that, to me, might be the most significant day apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and that was the giving of the law upon Mount Sinai. You and I as Christians, because we have been so inundated to say, well, I'm not under the law. And so we don't take the time to really value what took place in that moment. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter number 20. And I want to go ahead and just expound just a little bit about it. I won't read from it. I will read from one verse of Scripture in the book of Exodus in a moment. But I just want you to see how important that moment is. Now, remember, Israel has come out of Egypt. They were hidden in Egypt's womb for 400 years. They went down as 70 members of one family, the patriarch Jacob. And they were brought forth by the hand of God as potentially 2.5 million men, women, and children that had incubated in the womb of Egypt. And God had distinctly called the children of Israel. But you have to remember that there were a plurality of gods and idols that the Egyptians worshipped. And what would be distinct from the worship of Yahweh? What would make Yahweh be identifiable as the one true God? How would there be some type of validation? First of all, the judgment upon the Egyptian gods. Anytime that you study the book of Exodus and you see the wrath of God being poured out upon Egypt, there were ten deities that were the most common in Egypt. There were ten plagues that fell upon Egypt. And it was primarily God displaying His superiority over all of the idols of men. Now you and I can make it out like there were these gods, little g, that were in opposition to the one true God. But the reality is there is but one God. There's no other God but Him. 
There's only the imaginations of men that have been uh, supplanted by idolatry through satanic influence. I mean, God sits alone in the heavens. He doesn't share His glory with another. He doesn't look around and say, well, there's a distant deity I may have to combat one day. No, God sits on His throne in heaven. The earth, we think about the earth. The earth is nothing but the footstool of our God today. And so God displayed His wrath and His power and His glory uh, against the gods of Egypt. But He brought Israel upon the closing of the Red Sea and the children of Israel separated from Egypt. He brought them to Mount Sinai where God had met with Moses many days earlier. And, uh, and God told Moses, gave him specific instruction. He said, tell the people not to touch the mountain. Nobody could come, come near. Don't be together intimately, husbands and wives, for three days. It's a special moment. And God said, I'm going to come down. And I preach this multiple times because I gained such revelation in my heart when I think about it. Because in that moment, the invisible God, Anybody can claim that they have met a God, can go in a back room somewhere and say, well, I had an angel appear. Well, how do we know? Show us a validation. Anybody can take an object and carve it out of wood or stone and call it a God. But on that moment, in that moment, 2.5 million people watched when the heavens went from a beautiful, bright, sunny day to a dark, rolling black. And clouds began to amass. And all of a sudden, lightning bolts began to shoot across the sky. And it just dropped lower and lower until it sat on the mountain. And all of a sudden, the mountain combusted in flame. And it began to burn. And there were voices that were heard. And it was God that just stepped down. And sat down on the mountain to take a rest for just a moment. And the people saw it. And they heard the voice of God speaking to them out of the cloud. And God was validating the prophet Moses and the call of ministry that he was about to give Moses when he gave him the law. Let me take you into this a little bit farther. Because, but there was also a revelation of what would take place. If you read this closer in Exodus chapter number 20, when the people saw the glory of God and they heard the voice, they were so afraid. They knew they couldn't come near the mountain lest they die. But the Bible says not only did they not come near, they shrieked away. They backed away, the same as you and I might would at the power and the glory of God. And they came to Moses and they said, Moses, you talk to God. We are afraid of the voice of God. And that was the first place where you see the role of a mediator, an intercessor. Because the people shrunk away in fear, but the Bible says, but Moses went into the darkness where God was. Hallelujah. Now that's powerful, church family. And because one of the reasons why that God did, now typically God wants everything to be by faith and not by sight. Right? But in that moment, God chose to validate physically in the natural world His reality. The invisible qualities of God were clearly seen so that they were without excuse from that day forward. They could not say, how do we know that there's a God? 
they saw and heard things that had to be supernatural. Correct? And so one of the purposes of why God did this was to validate Moses and the priestly ministry. Because Moses was going to give them a law. They heard God speak the Ten Commandments. Where God said, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And thou shalt not commit adultery. And thou shalt not steal. And thou shalt not covet. And all these things, as we know as the Ten Commandments, they heard the audible voice of God. So when Moses came down from the mountain four days, or 40 days later with the tablets of stone, the tablets of stone that were laid in front of them were the very same commands that they had audibly heard God say 40 days previously. And then when Moses gave them a law to live by, the law of what we call the law of Moses, the Torah, then it would be validated by that singular moment because he said, I'm going to give you words after the tenor of these words. It's very important for us to see because God gave them not only laws to relate to each other, what to do in living life, everyday life with your neighbor and how to function in a civilized society, but God also gave them the means to approach him. In the law, it's not only just the civil laws, but there's also laws regulating worship. God would give them instruction about a tabernacle. God would give them instruction about sacrifice. God would give them instruction about an ordained priesthood. And we read in the scriptures that God chose Moses' brother Aaron for the lineage of priests. And the scripture says that God gave Moses the, uh, the, the instruction to take the anointing oil. And to anoint his head and consecrate him. The Bible says that he was to put oil on his head and he was to put it on his thumb and his big toe. And I've told you this before, but if you notice, and maybe some of you think I'm wacky, I'm like the, the football coach that reads the grass before the game. And I, I anoint my head every Sunday and my thumb and my big toe. But not necessarily my big toe, but it's my shoe. I know some of you said, Pastor Brown's right shoe is always shiny in that one area. Now you know what it's from. It's because what I'm doing is I'm reaching back. I'm reaching back and say, God, I'm about to go in front of the people as a priest. I'm about to go in front of the people, and I want to be consecrated and set apart for the ministry that God's given me. So God took Aaron, and he put a priesthood, a call of his sons, and the lineage of his sons. And there would always be one. That was the high priest. And there would be a high priest amongst the other priests. And the scripture gives us a record of their clothes and their garments. There were certain garments that they were to wear. And there was only one place that the priest could go that the other, that the high priest could go. Y'all know this. It was behind the veil in what's called the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant of old. And it was there that on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that the priest would enter in with the blood of a bullock and of a goat. And he would plead for God's mercy upon the nation. Everybody's, most of you are familiar with that record. But I want to show you something else just real quickly. I think they're going to put it on the screen in Exodus 28 and 29 tells us of something else that the priest was also to have when he went into the presence of God. It says, and Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel. Where? In the breastplate of judgment. Upon what? Come on, somebody. Upon his heart when he goeth in unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So here's Moses, the man of God, saying, there's going to be a generation, a genealogy of priests. They're going to come from Aaron's loins, and they're going to serve in the tabernacle. And every time they go into the holy place, he's going to put on the ephod. And on the ephod is going to be a breastplate. And on the breastplate are going to be 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And there's going to be a stone on the left shoulder and a stone on the right shoulder. Six names are going to be written on the left 
side and six names are on the right side and it's going to be in his heart as well so that when he's standing before God he's not forgotten the people of God that at all times when he goes into the presence of God he's always going to have his people on his mind and on his heart how exciting is that to know that there was a priesthood I think about that for mine and Joe and us other pastors here and our responsibilities as pastors. Let me tell you, a lot's changed from that day till now, but some of that burden still exists. We carry that burden. I think about that in my prayer time, and I thank God when I pray, Lord, let me have a pastor and a, and, and a priest's heart to carry the needs of my church family and to petition and to intercede, and to take your plight and your situation, knowing I can't fix it, and I can't resolve it. I can't fix your broken family. I can't fix your financial crisis. But one thing I can do is I can take your hand by prayer, and I can reach my hand all the way up to an unchanging hand who can meet your need. And by faith, and by the power of inner... Come on, somebody. By the power of intercession, hopefully, pull those two together and so that your hand can be in his hand, and he'll lead you in a straight place. Glory to God. Thank God today for the priest. Well, last week in my preaching, is anybody, I know you're saying, Pastor Brown, I, I've forgotten your sermon by this afternoon, much less seven days. But I preached a little bit about David. And I, before we got to Ziklag, we first journeyed with David when he went to Nob, when he fled from the house of Saul. Does everybody remember that? Anybody? The Bible gives us this record. Listen to this real quickly. He went there to Nob, and it was there that he obtained the sword of Goliath. And we remember how that I told you the story. Doeg the Edomite saw what took place, reported it to Saul. Saul came to Nob, where was the tabernacle and where was the lineage of the priests were living, the majority of them, but not all of them. They were there, and when Saul uh, wanted to slaughter and his hatred for David, uh, it, believing that there was treason in the priesthood, he was going to slaughter all the priests, and nobody would slay any of the priests except for Doeg the Edomite. Anybody remember that? And so Doeg drew his sword, and the Bible says he killed over 80 priests that day. 80 men of God that interceded for the people lost their life. But Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, who was the high priest, escaped. And the Bible says he escaped to David, and he found David, and he brought with him the ephod. Does anybody remember that? And with that ephod, it's very possible that it wasn't just any ephod, for all the priests wore an ephod, but it was most likely it was the ephod of the high priest, and it carried the breastplate, and it had the pouch where the Urim and the Thummim that I talked to you about last week. I know some of you saying, Pastor, I'm used to these churches where they just give us three quick points in a poem and get us out of here on time, and you're talking about Urim and Thummims and priesthoods and things I don't know anything. Well, you need to get and stay in a church where we're going to teach you something. So that you can, because knowledge is power. And, and you can overcome if you know that you can overcome. And when you know what you know, if you'll listen today, and when this revelation gets written on your heart, what I'm going to tell you today, it too will empower your life in Jesus' name. It will. It will empower you in who you are, knowing what you're going to know today. And the Bible reckon the reason why I wanted to mention that just real quickly is think about that for a moment. The tabernacle was still at Nob. David is the fugitive. But he's got the priest right there with him. And the priest has access to God. Now, I know that God's presence was hidden in the veil, uh, in the holy place, in the tabernacle. But how many of you know that was symbolic of the presence of God? Because David's the one that would later write and said, I could make my bed in hell 
and God is still there, or I could ascend to the highest of heavens and there's God. There's no place that I could escape the presence of God. And so David in the wilderness had the priest, and the priest had access to God. So I thought about that, and I said, how powerful. He's a national priest, yes, but he's also a personal priest. He's one that could mediate and intercede for David and also give him insight because he would give him access to the presence of God. And so when David became king, he brought the ark to Jerusalem to a tent, but he made sure that some of the worship continued at the tabernacle. He continued to make sure that there were priests worshiping God. So that brings us up to where I want you to see here as we begin to get back into the book of Hebrews. Because there was a power to the priesthood. God told Israel, he said, I hope that you're going to remain with me because I want you to be a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests. We read in the narrative of Scripture that the offices of a king, priest, and prophet were not set when Moses functioned as leader. But when you look at the life of Moses for just a moment, you understand that Moses did serve as a leader, which would be like a king or a judge. He was also a prophet, but he was also to a degree a priest, for he, inter he interceded on behalf of the people. And the contrast that the author of the book of Hebrews begins to make to validate to the people that they did not put their faith in a false doctrine or a false ideology or a fable, a cunningly devised fable, as Peter has said. But the author is writing to them to tell them, you put your faith in he that is far more superior than what the Judaizers are trying to tell you is the real and the authentic faith. It was real and authentic, but it ran its course. And so the entirety of the book of Hebrews is a dialogue to take people with an understanding of the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and Moses and the history of the nation to allow them to know that all that was like a schoolmaster to point them to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Somebody prayed it this morning and said, God, give us a revelation. I pray that right now. God, give us a revelation right now where we're seating in here today. Open our eyes and let me see Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, but we see Jesus. Let that be our prayer today. Not just church, not just sweet fellowship one with the other. That's not what's going to change your life. You know what's going to change your life? When you have a revelation of Jesus Christ, of His power, of His glory, of His kingship, of His prophetic anointing, as Him as ruler, as judge, and yes, as Him as a merciful and a faithful high priest who ever lives to make intercession for you right now. That will change your life. It'll change your perspective. So the author here begins to give us various contrasting points, taking the thing that they know the most about and then showing how that it is, though it was valuable, it fails in comparison when you put it against the reality of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he accomplished through his death on the cross. And that's what I want to talk to you about in closing this message today. The superiority of Jesus Christ and his high priestly ministry in his role. Let me take a moment. I'll have to go a little bit fast in some of these today, but uh, some of it I'll slow down on. Are y'all okay with that today? I know I use the word y'all a lot in Scripture, but when you're raised in Wilburn, that's just kind of part of who you are. If I was back up in Fox, Jerry and Pam would be Ewans, wouldn't it? I text y'all. I think about that every now and then because I listen to my sermons and say, Pastor Brown, you're doing pretty good, but if you'd stop saying y'all so much, then I find myself texting people and I'm texting y'all. 
So I don't know. That's kind of confusing right there. Stay with me, though. I've got some good things to talk to you all about. Oh, Jesus. Chapter number three. Let's read verses one through six for just a moment. We have to start here just real quickly. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Who's he talking to? He's talking to them, but he's talking to us. Consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. So he started right here and said, let's consider him. He was faithful, who was faithful to him that appointed him. And then he begins the contrast, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Moses was faithful. The writer of the book of Hebrews is not trying to take away in any capacity the ministry of Moses and what he came to accomplish. But then the writer says, but this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Come on, now let's read it. I want you to think about that. Moses, who had the power and the prophetic voice of God, who spoke face to face with God as a man speaking to his friend. Moses, who came down from the mountain in the presence of God and had to shield his face from the people because of the glory that he had obtained in the presence of God. The Bible says this man was counted worthy of more glory of, than Moses. Why? Inasmuch as he who builded the house hath more honor than the house. Now listen, read very closely these next couple of verses because here's a revelation. For every house is builded by some... But he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant. As a servant to God, Moses was faithful. And it's a testimony of the things which were to be spoken after. And the writer here is saying, I'm not trying to take away from Moses. Moses will always go down in the Hebrew hall of faith as a man of God who by faith left Egypt, forsook Egypt, considering himself not the daughter or the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but rather a Hebrew at heart, and he led the people out. But the writer gives us a revelation to this man called Jesus. He said, but Christ, the sixth verse. So one was a servant, but the other was the son. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Maybe we don't understand the full context of this, but he is writing and saying, but Jesus as a son over his own house, whose house we are. Just that revelation alone gives the superiority of the ministry of Jesus versus that of Moses. Moses was a faithful servant of the house of God, but Jesus was the son over the house. And he said, therefore, that principle alone creates within him a superiority. From there, he then takes us into Christ's superiority as high priest as contrasted with the, the priestly ministry of Aaron. Can we take a moment of time to dialogue that for just a moment today? What time is it? Are y'all out there? I, I've got a little bit to, to go, so y'all stay with me. But I want you to come to the apex today. I want you to see Jesus in a way that maybe you've never seen him before. I want you to turn over in your Bibles to chapter 6 for one verse, and then we're going to walk briefly through chapter number 7, and we're going to focus on what the writer here is revealing to us about the ministry, the priestly ministry of Jesus for just a moment. And we're going to read it together, and it'll be good for you. It's called a Bible exercise, and you need it, right? You need to read it. Let's read it right here. The last verse of the sixth chapter says, The forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. He's made a high priest forever after the order of who? 
Melchizedek. Don't forget that. Some of you know about him. Some of you do not. I'm going to briefly talk about him. The writer here begins to expound. What does that mean? That saying that Jesus is not made a priest after the order of Aaron, but he's made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so he's making a point that validates the superiority of Jesus' eternal priesthood over the present earthly priesthood of Aaron. And he's saying that Jesus did not come from the Aaronic priesthood. We're going to read that in a moment. But he did come in the lineage of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? The author takes us into this. For this Melchizedek was the king of Salem. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he met Abraham when Abraham returned from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, being by interpretation that Melchizedek means the king of righteousness because he's the king of Salem and he's the king of peace. In Salem, in ancient Judea, Judea was Jerusalem. So Melchizedek is functioning in that ancient community during the days of the patriarch Abraham as both king and priest over the people that dwelt in Salem. And he comes out to meet Abraham as Abraham won the spoils of war and battle. And he's coming forth and Abraham comes and brings a tithe, 10% of all that he won in warfare. And the Bible then begins to talk about this. Read it on further. This Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without descent, there's no record in the Bible. There's no genealogy. We have a genealogy of Aaron all the way back. But here he's saying, Melchizedek, we don't have a record. We don't know who his father was. We don't know who his mother was. There's no record of his descent. There's no record of when he was appointed as the king or the priest. He didn't have a beginning of days nor an end of life, but he was made like unto the Son of God. And he abides a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, that even the patriarch Abraham gave him what? The tenth of the spoils. Who verily there are the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed them that had the promises. Now listen to this. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the, of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he received them of whom it was witnessed that he liveth. And as I may say, so say, Levi also who received tithes paid tithes in Abraham's, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And I know that's a lot of theological information that I don't want to even get into today because I don't want to talk about Levi and the tithes, but I want to talk about Abraham and Melchizedek. Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish people, but he is met by Melchizedek, who is the king and the priest of Salem. And the Bible says that he came with bread and wine in his hands, and Abraham gave him a tenth of all of his spoils. And then Melchizedek opened his mouth and spoke a prophetic blessing over Abraham. And the writer here tells us plainly that in that culture, only the lesser received the blessing. Only the greater spoke the blessing. And he's making a point that Melchizedek then is showing even his superiority over our patriarch Abraham. Because in the Jewish people, there was no, no one higher than Father Abraham. So he's making this argument to convince the people. So let's go on a little bit farther. Because Melchizedek has no uh, appointed person to fulfill his role as priest. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, 
What further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek? And where's that coming to us from? In Psalm 110, David writing by the prophetic voice of God said there will come a day when there will arise another priest after the order of Melchizedek. And the author is using that one lone spoken oath to show that the ministry of Jesus through the order of Melchizedek creates a superiority over the priestly ministry of Aaron. Now, stay with me. I know you're saying, well, just a minute, Pastor, I don't know where you're going. Stay with me. The author takes us into helping us understand this. If perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need were there for another priest that would arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe. Read it with me. I don't care to say I'm reading a lot of scripture today. Of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. Of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. But it is far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there would arise another priest. Now, now listen, this may not mean that much to you, but if you were a first century Jew who had been taught that the priestly ministry of Moses, Aaron, the temple, the tabernacle, and that was your access point to God, and then you put your faith in Jesus, and now somebody's coming around and saying, no, Jesus is not the Savior, He's not the Messiah, and then you're being torn in your faith to know what you believe. And the writer here is giving us a compelling argument that Jesus' role and ministry is, more, is superior to that of Aaron. Does that make sense at all to you here today? Let's read down just a little bit further. Who is made? Who is this, this, this Melchizedek? Not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies that thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, the point that he makes in these next few verses is very simple. Melchizedek's ministry differs from that of Aaron in this point alone. The Aaronic high priesthood changed with the death of the high priest year after year. As a matter of fact, you can go and sit down at your computer and you can Google high priest Judaism, and they'll give you a name, a list that began at Aaron and ran all the way to the last priest of the second temple era. But concerning Melchizedek, he has an ever-living priesthood. What does that mean to us today? Jesus Christ became a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And let me tell you today, church family, he's alive today in the presence of God for us. You and I may pass into eternity, but when we do, we'll be met by the one that abides in eternity where he ever lives. I want you to hear that today. He ever lives to stand in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ, an unchangeable priesthood. Let me go ahead. I'll tell you what. I'm gonna, for the sake of time, I'm gonna, I'm gonna squeeze some things together. I'm gonna take my glasses off there. I'm gonna step down here and just come, go ahead and bring it real quickly to you for the sake of time. Because if I read that, I'm going to run out of time, then I'm going to feel the pressure. And I don't want that. 
I came to you to tell, to tell you today about a high priest. Because when I was looking back over my sermon last week, I was thinking about it, and I thought, man, I just didn't do right with David. In that singular moment, Joe, when he had a right there with the ephod, how awesome would that be to have somebody had the presence of God and had the voice of God right there. And when David needed the counsel of God and the wisdom of God because he was going through the difficulties of life and challenges, that he said, bring hither the ephod. Well, he said, bring me that man of God. I need that intercession. I need that mediation. I need somebody. You know, I'm distraught. I've got challenges. Saul's trying to kill me. The world around me is falling around me. And my kids have been taken. Ziklag's burning. Does anybody remember that? Ziklag is burning. My people, my friends that I hung out with, they're talking about stoning me. I don't even know how I'm going to make it. You know how he got through? Because he said, bring me the ephod. He said, I need that priest that's got the anointing on his life. I need the one that's got access to the presence of God to speak to God on my behalf. Because I don't even know if I know how to pray right now. I need somebody. I need somebody that's got a voice in the heavenlies that can communicate to God on my behalf. Because everything around me is all distraught. And I'm not hearing from God right now. And when the priest got along beside him, he heard the voice of God. He gained the wisdom of God. And he gained the peace of God. And I thought when I was thinking about my sermon, I said, I left that undone. Because I want the people to know that you got a high priest today. Let me tell you, you got a pretty good preacher. You got great pastors. Let me tell you, I love these men of God. But you know what? We are just but a piece of sand, a grain of sand. Because Jesus Christ is your priest. We might be your pastor, your friend, and your teacher, but you got somebody. Whoever lives to intercede for you and your family right now. He's standing in the presence of God before God right now. And you know what, church family? His blood is your defense. His blood speaks on your behalf. The enemy tries to accuse you before God. But the resounding voice of the blood of Jesus Christ declares that you're innocent. You're set free by the power of the blood that was shed. Time didn't allow me. The writer of Hebrews said in chapter 11, time does not allow. Time doesn't allow me, but I'm going to just throw it out there real quickly today. If time would have allowed me, I would have talked to, talked to you further about, about the sacrifice. Not only is he the priest, but he was the sacrifice. Because the Bible says that the priest, the Aaronic priesthood, would go into the presence of God with the blood of a bullock and of a goat. And the writer said the blood of a bullock and of a goat cannot take away sin. But he said, but this man entered into the presence of God one time. And he didn't carry a basin filled with the blood of a bullock or a goat, but he brought his own blood. And he poured it out before God as an eternal sacrifice. And the Bible tells us that our sins are forgiven. And did you know when I was thinking about that, we try to be pious. And we continually confess the sins that we've already repented of. And if, if you were to read Hebrews deeper like I've done over the last couple of days, you would be reminded when I do so, in essence, I'm just speaking unbelief. Because when you confess it before God, God said, I have forgiven you of all your sin. Why are we bringing up something that God's already forgiven us of? Come on. 
So we need to be washed by the washing of water by the Word of God and get our conscience cleared before God so that we have access to God. I want to go ahead and, and take you into this real quickly to, to summarize all these things together because for the sake of time, I just felt like I just needed to shift this message. The Bible tells us, though, that we have access to God. I believe that, don't you? I mean, because of Jesus Christ, I can come boldly. That's one of the passages of Scripture. We come boldly to the throne room of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I want you to think about that for just a moment of time. In ancient Israel, they had the outer court. Then they had the way, the truth, and the life, which was the access point into the holy place. And then they had the veil that separated the holy place. And there were staged people, Levites, that would keep people from stumbling into the presence of God. But now you and I have access to the presence of God. Boldly, confidently, no matter where you are, when you begin to lift up your voice and you begin to worship God and you begin to pray, let me tell you, church family, then you are standing in the presence of a living God right there. And you know why you can stand there confidently and boldly? Because you're not alone when you get in there. When you get in there, let me tell you, there's a high priest that's been waiting for you to get there. And he's been standing there in the presence of God and he's had you on his heart. And all that plight and all that situation that you think about, nobody cares. There's one who cares. There's one who cares. And before you even pray, he already knows. In my own personal plight this week was I was wrestling with this message, and I thought to myself about the things that I'm going through, and I've been praying about it and asking the Lord. All of a sudden, God gave me a revelation that while I'm praying about these things, he's praying about them too. And I'll tell you what, that just changed my whole countenance. When I thought to myself, my God, I'm not in this all alone trying to figure out the will of God. I've got a priest that's standing in the presence of God, and he's praying for me right now, praying that I'll follow the will of God, I'll do the design will of God, and I'll walk in the ways of God. And oh, how it lifted my whole countenance and brought joy back into my soul when I just knew that I had a friend. Let's stick it closer than a brother. I have a high priest like David of old. I didn't have to go to the temple to find him. He was with me all the time. And when I accessed the presence of God in prayer, I discovered that his presence was already there. And he was interceding for me and my family, my situation, and your family. That's how he's a personal. He's a national God. He's the Savior of the world. But he's a personal priest. Isn't that powerful? There's a perpetual priesthood. He continues to live. But it's also a personal priesthood. He's not just for the nation. He's for you. But there's another verse. And I want to see if I can find it real quickly. And we'll put this up in closing since I just decided to just wrap it up this way. I want you to, show, I want you to see one other passage in Hebrews real quickly. I'm going to kind of kick myself later. I can't kick myself now, I, was try I, knew I, I knew that I couldn't share all this in one Sunday. I knew that. But I tell myself that I can. I tell myself, I'll preach fast. And in, so in doing so, I've had to abandon the sermon and just go with just kind of the thought here in my heart just real quickly. I wanted you to see. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. And then chapter 4, and I'm going to close with this. Wherefore, in all things, 
it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. We're talking about the Son of God, Christ incarnate, the nature of God, Emmanuel, God with us. To one degree, he left this divinity. To another, he certainly contained it within, but he shrouded himself in human flesh. The Bible says to be made like. Isn't that what it said right there? His brethren. Why? Why? Let's read on. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To not make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Thank God he's reconciled us to God. He rec- but look at this, though. Look at this. This is so important to us. It's overlooked. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted. Look at this closely. He is able to secure or to help them who are tempted. What a powerful word that is to us today. Because I don't know about you in your life. There are times in my life, man, where I'm on cruise control. There are. There's some times that things are. But there's some times, there's some situations that I don't have an answer for. And it's heavy. And life is difficult and challenging and perplexing. And I just need a helper. Does that make sense today? Where can I go to get that help? He said, I have a helper right there if I'll just but go to him. So look at this last passage in closing real quick. It's chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. This was the title of our message. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities. What does that mean? That means he can be touched. His heart is moved because you're on his heart. Does that make sense? You are on his heart the way Israel was on the heart of the priest of old. You're on the heart of Jesus today. He's moved by your plight, your situation. He was in all points tempted like you are, yet he didn't sin. And here's the key. Therefore, come boldly to the throne room of grace, and you will obtain mercy, and you'll find what? Grace to help in time of need. I want to ask everybody to stand up with me today. Worship team's going to come back and join me today. It's right at noon. Jesus Christ is the great high priest. Can I say that again? Jesus Christ is the great high priest. Now, Joe and I have been doing this for a long time now, haven't we, Joe? And people come to church for a lot of different reasons, don't they? They come to us. They come to us in all different seasons of life and situations. And we do our best to help. We do. We try. We say, I try, but God does. I could tell you, you can find a pastor who cares. We'll do our best. But you're not, your life is not going to change. You're never going to be the person God's called you to be unless you go to him. The priest. You've got to go to him. You've got to come to Jesus. Point I wanted you to see of this message today. I just felt when I look back at what I did with David and having Abathar the priest 
I didn't expound that enough. I wanted to reconnect to that. But then I wanted you to see that you're here today and you've got a priest that's in the presence of God for you. And he's just waiting on you to come. Prayer is the means by which we approach God. We don't have to journey to Jerusalem. We don't have to go up to Mount Sinai in Israel or in Egypt or Arab, uh, Arabia, wherever it's at. We don't have to do that. Just by prayer, we're able to come into his presence. And when we do so with the knowledge that we're approaching God through Christ, and we understand that he's interceding for us, we join our faith to his faith. And you know what? You're going to make it through because he's a great high priest. So I felt like today that I should give an invitation as the worship team sings in a moment. And that is for you that say, Pastor, I need his help today. I just need God's grace. I need his mercy in my life. You know, in ministry, when I start to close, people start to go that way because they want to beat the rest of y'all in the parking lot. People start to move that way. But the, pe- the preacher's heart is for you to move this way, isn't it? Because we know what can take place. When you just journey just a few feet forward and you just say, God, here I am. I thank you for Jesus today. I need his help. I need the intercession of the great high priest. And you join your faith to his faith. That's why he said, hold fast to your profession of faith without wavering. You join your faith to his faith as he intercedes to God on your behalf. I tell you, you'll walk out of this building changed by the grace that you receive in that moment, won't you? So I'm going to ask you, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I'm in a situation in my life, you know, maybe like David, I don't know. Your family and your situation, it may be in flames right now. The only thing that saved David was his time with the high priest. What could be between you and the end of your situation could be a moment right here, the front of this church with the high priest. Jesus Christ is the high priest. I want to ask you if you would right now, let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed for just a moment. Who here would say, Pastor Brown, I'm going to be honest. I need the help of God today. I'm just in a situation, a season in my life. And I just need to know. I just need to know. I need to connect. I need to connect to something. I need to connect to someone today. And I want that to be Jesus. If that's you, raise your hand. I want to see your hand in this building today. Thank you. Thank you. Who else here today? Take, take, be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. All right, number two then, if you raise your hand, I want to really challenge you. David said, bring hither the ephod. And we could go sermon. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you, be courageous enough to just come to the front. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Matter of fact, God forbid that every person doesn't follow you. Step out where you're at and just say, I've got to have your help. Jesus, you said in your word that you were my secure, you're my helper. I need your help today. I need to know that you're, that you're interceding on my behalf today. People are coming to the front right now. Secondly, today, 
If you're here today and you say, Pastor, maybe I'm not in a plight quite as great as what I identified with that David at Ziklag situation, but I still want to stand in the presence of God and make intercession in the house of God. I want to join my faith to that of Jesus's, who is the great high priest. Maybe you want to pray for somebody that came forward. Maybe you want to stand alongside of them like Abathar did David and just remind them that Jesus is with them. His strength and His grace is being made known in their lives. If that's you, I want you to come and give these people some lateral support. Let them feel the warmth and the touch and the love of a church family that stands with them. These people had the courage to come forward and say, I need the help of God. He's the great high priest today. And I wanna, I'm going to burn that in your consciousness today. The church is good. Preachers are good. But it's the great high priest that's going to set you free. It's the great high priest who's going to deliver your life. It's the great high priest that's going to help you. It's the great high priest that's going to bring you the healing in your life and your heart. It's the great high priest. So as we sing a song of worship today, and church family, let's let there be a spirit of worship in this house. Let Christ be exalted. Men and women are coming to God for help, the aid of the great high priest. And today we're going to trust in his presence, Lord, in the name of Jesus.